Good morning, good evening, good afternoon. We're just warming up for the launch of Sales of Force for Good. We are a global movement, or that's the plan, to elevate sales as a profession. We'll be going live in eight minutes, and you're very welcome to comment, ask questions, uh, contribute if you'd be interested in volunteering to be part of the community as an ambassador, as a moderator, um, someone who organizes events. If you'd like to open community groups on Clubhouse, on Facebook, on Slack, then please get in touch. This is a, an attempt to reverse the rot that has set in over the last 40, 50 years and that has taken sales away from being a service business to one that is serving the salesperson or the vendor. Morning, Russell. Lovely to hear from you. What I'm hoping is that we will create momentum. I'm not expecting this to be an overnight shift in the way things are done. But what I am concerned about is the fact that sales has been diverted from its path as a service business. It's been refocused through the way we're invested in, the way we're measured, the way we're hired, the way we're managed. And I firmly believe that sales is the powerhouse that drives the economy in every country globally. And it frustrates me that I hear so many customers and prospects have having had terrible experiences because of the way sales and marketing have engaged with them or failed to engage. The lack of honesty, the lack of transparency, the lack of listening. And really, this is an opportunity for you to play your part in massively improving the capability of salespeople, the ethics within sales to make sure that we put buyer safety front and center in everything we do. So my first question, which I'd love to ask uh, or get answered, is if we had to only pick five areas, and those five areas would get us 80% of the way towards our objective, which is making sales a force for good, making us, our customers and prospects partners, giving them buyer safety. And you could only pick five. What are the five big, hairy-ass areas that we really have to focus our attention on over the next 12 months? Now, I get it. We're not going to get there overnight, and it's going to take a lot of work and a lot of brave souls to change what we've always done. But it doesn't mean it can't be done, and it certainly doesn't mean that it shouldn't be done. I'm inviting everyone who's listening, everyone who is able to participate, to give their views, uh, volunteer as much or as little as you can, and get involved. This isn't about me. This is about our profession. I have a number of guests who've agreed to come on this morning. They're going to give their opinions. We've got an hour and a half to discuss this uh, planet. I'm going to be honest with you. 
I'm stabbing in the dark. I've never built a community before. So if you are a community builder and you have experience of that, then please, please, please get in touch. Absolutely, Dave. Transparency is a huge starting point. I think we need to operate with rigorous authenticity. I think we shouldn't hide stuff. We shouldn't exaggerate. We should always tell the truth. And we need transparency on both sides. I think part of the problem is that sales and buying have become adversarial sports, and we need to address that. So anyone who's out there, can you do me a favor and just say hello in the chat? doesn't mean I'm going to victimize or pick on any of you. I would love to hear, uh, see who's out there. Um, so I'm not just speaking to myself, which is not a, an unusual state of affairs. I'm asking, hello, Karen. Yeah, you say being honest should be an easy fix, but um, shoulding and doing are two quite different things. So today I've got my good friend and partner in, how can I put this? I hesitate to use the word because it's the opposite. But um, Martin is a fabulous, insightful chap. If you haven't come across his work before, definitely look him up. Martin is bringing some honesty and transparency to marketing for global consumer brands and for sales organizations. Martin, good morning. Hey, how are you doing? Very well, thank you. I've kicked off with a question in the preamble whilst we're waiting for all of this to warm up. If we could only pick five areas that will help us to flip the switch and turn sales into a genuine force for good. And those five areas are the ones that are likely to get us at least 80% of the way where we want to be. What would you say are those top five areas? I think authenticity comes to mind a lot. It seems to be rising more yeah. and more as a, as a demand and a thing that I think about. I think one's, one's ability to listen is the ultimate thing for me of what makes a good salespeople are not and it's an age-old thing that everybody hears <laughs> technically <laughs> i think there's a listening capability i think that there's there's a perception change that needs to happen in the world in general but i think that comes from sales behavior anyway and i think that the ultimate thing is is the negotiation capabilities and i don't have a fifth one at the moment and i'm not going to reach for it for the sake of it okay excellent well in interestingly enough linkedin's State of the Nation report for 2020, active listening was the number one thing that customers were looking for. But it doesn't appear on any of the recruitment requirements of the top 10 or 15 requirements for hiring managers. So to introduce my good friend and longtime collaborator, Alex Mosco. Alex, welcome. Good morning. So Alex is a dab hand at telling the customer's story and what he does is he goes in on behalf of vendors and gets to uncover the customer's story in their own voice and tell that story because I think one of the things that as salespeople we have a really bad habit of doing is blathering on about ourselves and trying to make ourselves the hero and it's a fundamental mistake the customer is the hero at best, what we are are the guide. So we are the Obi-Wan and Yodas to uh, the Luke Skywalkers of the customer. So Alex, same question to you. 
if if you had to pick five key areas that you believe would help sales turn the ship and get at least 80% of the way to where we need to get to, what would your top five be? Okay, good, good question. And and I heard you talking just before about active listening and, and listening on, on the whole and how important that is. And it was interesting, I was having a, a conversation with a client the other day. Um, he's the CEO of a very large business, very well known, he's very, very successful. But, you know, back in his early days, he was uh, struggling to build businesses and actually was taking business market that weren't finding an audience. Nobody wanted the product. The product sounded like it was going to be something that people would want. But when he tried to sell it, it didn't uh, didn't connect. And actually, when he realized, when he listened to what they were saying, what they really wanted and sold them what they wanted rather than what he felt they needed. Uh, <laughs> massive, massive, <laughs> topic, right? And businesses that are now worth millions. Who would have thought, right? So, <laughs> so listening definitely not top of the list. But there's a reason why listening is so important. And, and, and that is because we live in our own kind of worlds, right? We all do. We live in our own realities where we have understanding based on experience and expertise. And we're either very close to or far away from particular subjects. And a lot of the time, the people that we're selling to aren't near those subjects, or they're nowhere near uh, as close to them as we are. They don't have the expertise. They don't have the experience. They haven't learned the lessons. They haven't made the connections that we've made. And so listening is important to hear about how people are talking about their experience so that we understand how we can connect what we have to what to that experience and to you know, the, the problems they're facing. And so we can I'm use sorry, that. Alan, just stand out. Can you say that again? <laughs> <Very good. laughs> I, 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 I want to bring in a couple of other folks. Um, so sorry, yeah, to sorry you know, you know what? That, that was a bit of me, I know. Okay, <laughs> so my good friend Fred Copeake, good morning. There seems to be a trend here in terms of haircuts. Martin, yeah, I'm going to beat you up in a second. You're far too I'll, I'll get my, I'll go and get my clippers, right? On that note, I'm just going to add Jerry Hill as well. Um, so we all hate you. <laughs> so, Fred, good morning. Jerry, good morning. Good morning, all. Hi. Fred, let's start with you. What are your top five ways that we can turn the ship? Um, if you were to only be able to work on five, and that would get us 80% of the way there, if they were our top priorities, what would you pick? And these are for sales leaders, correct? It's for sales generally. I, I'm th remember this is a, a big hairy ass brawl. Can I pick six? Subject. <laughs> we need to one. Oh, sorry, five. Well, the reason I want to pick six is because there's six elements of PQ, and that's what we've okay. chatted about before. I'll, um, I'll, I'll let you off in that case. Go ahead. Oh, thank you, thank you. No, so so PQ partnering skills is something that. You, you know that I think is really important in professional selling today. I tend to think about how salespeople will apply this, but absolutely, a sales leader can use their PQ to, to guide the ship, to guide the team. Um, so if we look at those six elements, uh, trust. Trust is, is, they're all interlinked, but I have to speak sequentially, obviously. But uh, trust is the first thing, because it's the foundation for relationships. It's what enables good communication. We've got to build that. We've got to build it with customers. If you're a leader, you've got to build that with your team. If you don't trust your team, well, you might as well give up there and then. 
win-win orientation. So again, we're thinking about mutual benefit. You know, we know that salespeople should be looking for that. But again, a sales leader should be using that to think, well, you know, are my people getting something out of this relationship with the business? I'm getting them to sell stuff for us, but what are they getting out of it? And it isn't just commission usually. So we can think about that. Um, interdependence. Yeah, so not the independent lone wolf salesperson. It's it's team sales. It's your own company, it's your own colleagues. Um, and so again, your sales leader can foster that in saying, hey, yeah, you are the pointy end, but there are other people that you need to involve and we need to we need to get we need to bring into the wholesale. Self-disclosure and feedback. So again, your salespeople talk about vulnerability, authenticity, and, and how they should talk about themselves to the customer a little bit, and certainly feedback to the customer if the customer isn't helping them. And I feel as though I'm about to throw a hand grenade in here, but sales leaders have got to set up a coaching culture. They've got to be giving feedback to people. Yeah. <laughs> well, it worked. Um, so, you know, that is such a key one. I probably should have just started with that if we're going down the pure leadership route. Um, comfort with change. Yeah, because you know, sales salespeople, we, we're change agents. Status quo is our biggest competitor. We've got to work with customers to help them get comfy with us. Deeply, we're in this state of change as well. So, you know, a sales leader can certainly understand what the self person is going through, and by understanding that, can help them with it. And then the future orientation. You know, it's that having that that vision with the customer, and equally, the sales leader should be sharing the vision and helping people understand where we're going and make decisions and plan actions going forwards. You mentioned that status quo is the biggest competitor. Corporate Vision's research with Stanford identified that of 100% of buying cycles, and if we are not timely, if we're not relevant, if we're not valuable, then the status quo has the greatest magnetism. Only 29.6% end up going to a vendor who comes in with something original, something fresh, something that moves them away from their current preferences and is able to create enough uh, white space between the competition, the status quo, and what they're offering, the future regret and blame. And if they can't do that with a strong business case, then chances are it may end up in a bid situation, which is 10.4% of sales cycles. And this was from 300 entire CRM systems. So that's a lot of uh, buying cycles. And the win rate on bids was one in four, which means that of all the buying cycles, if you're in a bid business, you have about a 2.6% chance of winning. And that creates desperation. Speaking of which, Jerry, let's bring you in. What's the correlation between desperation the and Jerry? Is that most people have a shitty, weak, empty, inconsistent sales pipeline. And um, I believe that we prospect for choice, and our job is to not only prospect for new clients, but also to prospect within our existing accounts. But there is this ludicrous obsession that a new business is the golden child, and account growth, channel sales, you know, all those other fluffy bits like customer success are somehow subservient to the new business drive. So really love to get your thoughts on your top five. Yeah, I, th I think, you know, prospecting is often an act of desperation. You're right. And that's because we over-index the wrong thing. For me, we over-index 
achieving the meeting more than anything else, rather than understanding the marketplace intelligence that, that prospecting unlocks for businesses. So we incentivize some bad stuff, right? We incentivize just the meeting. But why aren't we incentivizing things like, well, I'm not interested today, but I could be in six months. I'm not interested ever because I've got an issue with you, the rep or the company reputationally. I'm not interested in this because it's not going to fit our future state. So we're not actually turning out of the fund lists into business experts. We're turning them into product experts who get kicked in the teeth a lot every single day. And and that's just bad mojo for the entire industry, I feel. Cross-sell. You know, why aren't we prospecting more aggressively on cross-sell? If I think about the composition of where I'd want my sales leadership in an organization to be, our customer success teams, they own 80% of the number today. We still over-index what looks like the people in this conversation, the hairy-assed old-school business development alpha male director with a little bit of silver hair on their back. I don't know that that's the right thing. We seem to put us, the hero, up on the pedestal a little bit, and we're not indexing the ability to cross-sell and upsell and retain quite the same rate. The other thing that I'd be looking for, and I like what Fred said about coaching, but I want to make that a lot more specific. I, I want to stop coaching salesmanship. I want to start coaching business acumen. Absolutely. More than anything. I had quite an interesting WhatsApp exchange with your friend of mine, Shane Parminder, last night, Marcus. And he asked me a question about, you know, what makes you obsessive about selling? I said, I'm not obsessive about selling. I'm obsessive about business. Yeah. And I'm obsessive about understanding the nuance and the pain associated in a balance sheet more than I am about my product. Because if I can speak to that, I'm always elevating. I'm never not elevating. And I've only got one example from my career where I've actually achieved that and done it really well. I, I was selling an HR automation tool to recruitment companies. Mm-hmm. So you'd imagine quite a, quite a condensed market and people just weren't buying. And we suddenly realized that most of the money was coming directly out of the recruitment owner's pocket rather than anything else because that's how they perceived their balance sheet, right? It wasn't a company balance sheet. It was simply you know, an investment vehicle for somebody who had a low barrier to entry. But then the second that we started exploring the key measure for those businesses, which is net fee income per employee, we completely transformed the conversation. So all of our value started being around, well, why hasn't your net fee income per employee, when I look at your filings on companies house for the past 10 years, improved? Your revenues improved, but your profitability never has. Completely changed the game for the company, for me, and for the other salespeople in that team. But we don't do that in our coaching. We're not talking about that sort of balance sheet bit. We're not talking about how CFOs and investors think, which is ultimately all CEOs really care about, if that's who we're selling to today. So we end up in point pollution. And I, I just don't like point pollution at all. You know, there's so many products in the world. That point it just, pollution. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. Those are my my things. I could, I could go on all day about this. So I'm not. Going I, to. And uh, I'm hoping that you will. I've just conducted a series of about 15 interviews with CXOs, recorded for my clients, and the themes have been consistent. Whether they are CEOs, customer success directors, uh, chief marketing officers, chief operating officers, chief financial officers, chief procurement officers and chief people officers across the board, and uh, VPs and heads of sales and CROs, every one of them has consistently said that you need to understand my business. You need to have business acumen and be able to enter into my world, see the world through my eyes, 
you need to understand where I am and what I'm trying to achieve. And this is something I want to bring Martin in in a second about. We've got to build more games architecture into our conversation because we need to understand that no one makes a significant investment because they don't want to bring or deliver value to their business. They want to make those investments both to de- for today and tomorrow, but they have scarce, limited resource, definitely limited time. And if you are not able to engage them very quickly on their agenda, then you've got very short shrift. And the best you can hope for is being shunted to Siberia somewhere in their organization, but you will never get back in. So Martin, let me bring you in on this. Let's talk about gains architecture and what that means, because there's an awful lot, and I've been guilty of this for a long part of my career, just focusing on pain. And I think we need both. So talk to me about your views uh, around uh, pain and gain. The biggest thing about it is is a, is just building upon everything that Jerry said. Really, he absolutely nailed it, and it's it's one of the rare things. And it's not the first time I've heard it from somebody that's at Connect and Sell. Right, they've just got a wonderful way of understanding what they're what they're trying to do and how to do it. So, all kudos to Jerry. So, when we look at gains architecture, there's a thing that that we've built and proven over the past six years of business, and it's called the efficiency trick. And it's just as true for any individual's day to day life as it is for a business, as it is for somebody that works inside a business. And the way the efficiency trick works is that unless we can see something that is going to make our lives easier, quicker, better, faster, easier, we are demonstrably less likely to engage. So for example, if we take what why Uber won, let's forget about all the worker rights and all the sexist issues and stuff like that. Let's go back four years. What Uber did was that Alex and I used to sit in a bar, right? Pre-Uber. And Alex and I would be sitting there and Alex has given me a slightly dirty look. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I know. I'm sorry, Alex. And I pick up my mobile, right? And I call the taxi company. I'm like, Alex, they said they'll be here five more minutes, right? It's like ordering a pizza. Where's my pizza, right? And Alex is a bit upset. I'm a bit upset. We're going to be late for our dinner or whatever. We're going out on our mandate, right? <laughs> and then what Uber actually did was gave you human control. It was an efficiency trick. So when Alex and I were sitting in the bar, I could look at it and say, Alex, we've got two minutes for a taxi service. We'll have a shot. Like, yeah, we're both terrible at drinking, but yeah, we'll have a shot, right? And then the night goes on like that. That's human control. That's the efficiency trick. And that's as true for the consumer's life as it is for everything that's going on in today's world. And it's getting worse or it's getting a bigger opportunity, if you like. It's now known as the Amazon effect, right? We want everything quicker, faster, better, or we're even less likely to engage. And if we take what what I was complimenting Jerry about, right, is you've got to look at what is going on in the buyer's mindset. Not the business, the buyer, right? So all all singing, all dancing, all kinds of new features and functions, and it makes me sick that I even have to say those words these days, right? It's got nothing to do with what your product can do or your service can do. It needs to begin with what difference can you make for that buyer, right? Can you make their life quicker, easier, faster, better? And some of the easiest successes I've had consulting with software businesses is you just put reporting in play. You put automatic things into the service that that just means that the buyer's got even less work to do. And that can often be why they pick you and replace what, what was the service before them, because you're just making their life easier. That's a great example of gains architecture. What is it that the buyer is looking for that is going to be a gain in their life? And the easiest way to think about it, quicker, faster, easier, better. That's the efficiency trick. 
I think there's a big problem with that, though. I think there's a big problem with what Martin's talking about, that people don't measure it. That, the big issue with gains architecture is knowing what results you get and the impact they've had on the business. I agree 100% with what Martin's saying. You need to know what's in the buyer's mind. You need to know where they are now and where they want to get to and why that's important. And in order to understand where you've hit those points before, you need to talk to your clients and find out what the problem was that you solved, the result that you achieved, but the impact. So what, what, what was meaningful about that result to them? Where did it take them? What did it help them to achieve? But we don't ask those questions. We need to go into our clients after we've worked with them for six months a year and find out what we actually did and how we moved the dial. And we don't do it. And, and we should. Yeah, too much is based on just the point of sale, right, Alex? And then, yeah. and then we just forget about it and it gets handed over to the other silo of either the account team or customer success and stuff like that. So we sell when we can. We sell based on impact, but then we don't measure the impact. And then that costs us 10 other sales because that's a quality case study, right? That's actually proving what you're doing. Too much theoretical. I'd like to build on the two of you are saying and also Fred in that I think that piece around self-disclosure is really important and self-awareness. I think we need to reflect more and I think we need to make ourselves vulnerable. And so I'm going to set a challenge for everyone who's listening. And it's this, to ask your customers at the end of every sales interaction, I'm curious and I'd like some feedback. How did I perform as a salesperson and have you seen better? And if you have seen better, what was better about it? Because I believe that we have an obligation to raise our own game. I think one of the problems that we've created is we've created a sense of entitlement that the company should invest in us. And yes, absolutely, forward-thinking companies, managers, leaders will coach, will train, will mentor, but it's incumbent on us as individual salespeople as individual managers, as individual sales leaders, to invite constructive criticism, reflect and improve ourselves, invest in ourselves. And I see a dearth of that. And part of the problem is that I think the Amazons and the Ubers and all of these, as my friend Scott McTaggart says, we've sharpened appetites and created entitlement. And I think we have to be a lot smarter yeah, you know, something else he said, which I think is really insightful and relevant to this whole conversation, is it's easy to send kids to war, but it's hard to go to war yourself. And I think there is a divorce between marketing, between sales management and sales leadership, and the customer. And there needs to be a genuine alignment between marketing, sales, customer success, I think there needs to be a parallel alignment with operations because if sales sells ahead of operations ability to deliver, then you end up with disappointed customers. So what we have to do is we've got to think like business people and we've got to get out of our sales silo. So Alex, bringing you back in, if you look at the work that you've done over the last 20 years and you look at the difference between those salespeople who consistently manage to get those parallel conversations going 
What was the difference in terms of the customer's experience and the outcomes that they were able to get by generating discretionary effort across the entire value chain and across the customer journey? That's a very good question. It's a very big question. But I I think what it comes down to is, first of all, what the salesperson has done is they've asked better questions, right? So they've understood that they need to get the intelligence from the customer. And then what they do, well, the, the way that we've worked really well with sales teams as kind of marketing and PR people is to be able to equip them with the information they need to be able to sell in a way that's going to connect better to the people, to the customer. And then the customer gets more out of it because they are able to explain exactly what it is that they need. And then the salesperson can obviously give them stories, which are really obviously key uh, in explaining exactly how they can help. And then the relationship is that much better. But I think what that's just one part of it. And I think it's important to talk about what Martin was saying before. It all needs to be joined up, right? Because the sale doesn't end when you sign the contract. That's the transaction. That's the end of the transaction. It's not the end of the sale. It's the beginning. The sale ends when you've done a brilliant job and they then sign the next contract. And it's really interesting. I was working with a a guy who's really key in account management. And he says, you know, most account plans only work up until the first six months. Kind of you make the sale, you onboard the customer. And then you forget about the customer. You then come back a year later to sign the contract and you've already lost the business. They've already found somebody else to work with. So that, you know, marketing, the reason why marketing and sales work so well together is because they can help continue that relationship, continue uh, reaching out, connecting, giving, asking questions, making sure they've got everything they need, that we know what the next milestone is, right? When you have that first sales conversation, you're only really talking about the first milestone. You need to know what the next milestone and the next milestone, and you need to keep communicating so that you can upsell, cross-sell, just stay in that client um, forever. I'd, 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 I'd like to sort of just expand on that a little bit, and it's some practical work that we've been doing recently on this. I've started using a lot more sort of dynamic mutual action plans in my selling motion so that you've got a documented process that can be defined with the customer, not for the customer. But here's the key point to that. I use the transaction as the first starting point. And then I talk about the next 12 months, next 24 months. I don't put the transaction as the end point in my mutual action plan anymore at all. It's the very first thing we do is we contract and then we work out the success. The other thing that I really like there, and I think this is where we can reframe the entire language, is we talk about marketing, sales, customer success. That's the old paradigm. We just need to talk about revenue. And we need to stop mapping it as a funnel and a straight line thing with chevrons and a traditional point A to point B chevron. It's actually a flywheel. And every single customer can come out of that flywheel at any point and back in. And every single person that's responsible for the acquisition, transaction, and retention of those customers, we need to reframe how they're incentivized. Marketing is incentivized on task-based outcomes. Sales is incentivized on revenue-based outcomes, and customer success is incentivized on a range of different measures which haven't really been codified yet. But if we just simply align everybody to revenue and have everybody aligned to a revenue-based outcome, then we can stop having boring webinars about marketing and sales alignment. I'm going to challenge that, but before I do, what I want to say is that 
one of the outputs of this community that I would like to build is develop a war room kind of environment. And I'm looking for people to help who understand how to use tools like Mural or Miro and are better organized than I am. Because I fundamentally believe, and Fred, you'll like this, that we should be partnering internally because the internal conversation and all of that discretionary effort from all the people who help the customer be successful is really vital. We should be working with our partners. And most importantly, we should be partnering with our customers to co-develop the solutions and deliver the outcomes that they are after. So, Jerry, whilst I absolutely agree that unity of purpose internally is important, I fundamentally believe that what we should be doing is working with our customers and working towards their outcome. And I think this then speaks to the way we recruit, we onboard and we hire, we measure, and most importantly, we compensate. Because I don't believe that the current compensation model serves the customer or the companies particularly well. I think what we should be doing is compensating a little bit for getting the sale, the transaction. I think we should be compensating everybody who has been who's contributed to the success of the customer. And the big payoff is when the customer reports back that they have been successful and have had their outcomes achieved. And I think there should be interim payments for utilization and adoption. And there should be, uh, again, other uh, interim payments for repeat business, upsells and cross-sells where you're expanding the account. And the difficulty with that is it's complicated and it's difficult and you've got to put a lot of thinking into it. And that will put a lot of people off. But that will focus our attention because we know that we drive behavior by what we manage and measure and how we compensate. So, Jerry, I'd love your uh, pushback on that. It's not really a huge amount of pushback because I don't see the, the two things as mutually exclusive. I think you need to start with what you suggest as the beginning and what I suggest as the execution engine. So it's just a matter of semantics that we're thinking yeah, differently. I think so, yeah. Okay. I don't Excellent. think they dovetail so, separately in any way, shape, or form. I think they're quite neat and aligned together. Okay, so Martin, let's bring you back in. In terms of that coordination and the heavy lifting that needs to be done at the front end before we go to market or before we start inflicting shit advertising campaigns, flooding people's inboxes with billions of emails, bad prospecting calls, what are the kind of conversations we need to be having internally and uh, what kind of analysis do we need to put ourselves through? And then how do we have to bring the customers into that mix in order to ensure that what we're sending out and how we're communicating is absolutely, precisely, timely and relevant and valuable? Let me analyze your 64-part question, first of all. <laughs> um, I'm getting good at this. I always teach people only ever ask one question. And you just popped but... up the actual answer, right? So Erin's absolutely nailed this. So I'll take you back to 2003. To use my mum's language, it was when I had real jobs. So I was working at a very large telecoms business. And they'd had a repeating cycle of, of changing the compensation plan every single year. 
and none of the new business people understood it every year, right? So they, they, it was always like a puzzle. So you work your butt off, you get your sales, and then you're trying to figure out how you got your bonus, whether it's fair, right? There was no trust to it. There's no incentive behind it. And because it was a usage-based sale, what they were doing was, was just doing it based on contract value. And what I did was rewrite it, and it's still the same um, pay plan in the same business unit today. So what's that, like 18 years later? And the reason being is that I made it about a proportion of the sale was done on the contract, but actually most of it was done on utilization. So what's the status after three months, after six months, after 12 months? So the salesperson had an active role, the new business person, throughout that cycle, and it avoided what I call end-game selling. And end-game selling is often when we sell the theory, which is, um, I think we've been, we've been hinting a lot about this kind of idea of theoretical selling versus actualization and, and seeing what happens with the client and stuff. So it meant that everybody was engaged in the right places to do the right things to maximize the usage. And actually, the, the usage and the spend went up 36% within a year because what you were doing was having salespeople, new business people, whatever you want to call them, their hand was forced to deliver the thing that they'd actually sold about and they got better compensated before because of it. And it was super clear. Then what I did was moved on to how can we align sales and marketing behind it? And I know it's such an age-old thing and I know everybody talks about it, but everybody talks about it because it's an issue and it's a simple issue to fix. So what we did with marketing was, was showed them, these are all the sales tools that we're using. This is the methodology. This is why. This is how we're maximizing utilization. And it allowed us to then start backfilling the lead generation and the prospecting because of that. And it just brought it all to life. So there's an ability to incentivize all the things across the board with that. I think customer success is a much bigger door to open because, I, again, I think Jenny nailed it. It's, it's just so weakly defined. And my experience, speaking from a, a B2B point of view, is, is that customer success is generally done from a defense point of view. It's generally done with issues. But the best software businesses I've seen are the ones that take the time to onboard their users, their super users, their admin, their their sponsors, all that kind of stuff, and then repeat that cycle. I think I think in a um, in the world we're in at the moment, the opposite side, the negative side of the Amazon effect, is that we do too much end game selling, and there's too much end game process. And what happens is that when we get to that end game, there is not actually the usage, the adoption, or anything that comes with it. But we stop and we we exit people. And that doesn't make any sense to me because sales and marketing should be actively involved from that point of sale until you get that utilization. And as Jerry said, until that that flywheel continues, right? So I think it's just simple fundamentals. But at the end of the day, if your new business people can't simply understand and feel positive from your compensation plan, then all you've done is just a financial model based on what you view as profitability. It doesn't take into account people. All fantastic points. And I'd like to build on that with a concrete example. I don't know if any of you are familiar with Gong, for those of you uh, listening and watching. Uh, one of the real powerhouses is the partnership between Udi Ledeger, the CMO, and Ryan Longfield, the CRO. They speak every day. They work together hand in glove. Marketing is a core part of sales, and sales is a core part of marketing. They engage fully. They challenge one another. They discuss issues constantly. They go on long, uh, pre-COVID, uh, they go on long daily walks together, and they talk through the issues 
from the customer's perspective. And I think we've got to stop. Uh, we've got to break the silos between marketing and sales. We are all part of the same journey the customer goes on. And if there is any disconnect and if there's any um, uh, white space between marketing, sales and customer success, the customer experience is going to be poor. Now, Salesforce did some really interesting research called Experience the Shift, which they released at, in um, December last year. And if anyone wants a copy of that research, then please ask for it in the comments or DM me on LinkedIn or Facebook, and I'll send it to you. And what they uh, realized was that customer success is dependent upon customers achieving the outcome, and that was more important than the experience. And the biggest multiplier was employee engagement. That means anyone who touches the customer in any way, shape, or form, either directly or indirectly, needs to be fully engaged and invested in that process. So if you would like to get hold of that research and uh, see the conclusions, then that will allow you to get a, a real sense of what the best companies uh, that are achieving the fastest growth are um, able to attain. Now, what's really interesting about this is that Speaking to unhappy customers, which is something most of us will run away from, increased product development cycles by 600%. Go and speak to people who fired you, who are unhappy, and listen to where you screwed up. Pay attention to that information because they will not hold back. The middle layer of mostly satisfied customers will just give you pablum and vanilla. Speak to the people at the extremes. So on that note, I'm going to bring in one more guest, my good friend, Bob Apollo. Sorry to be rude on this one, Marcus. There's just something I'd like to jump in. Sorry, Bob. Just back on what the guys were saying, we were talking about compensation. Yeah. So for me, that's kind of, you know, pan notes, pan coins. And we're going to get coin-operated people. And when I was doing the thinking about, you know, how leaders can use PQ and we look at a win-win scenario, so organizations getting its wins, making its sales, getting customer success, the rest of it. Well, how about thinking about the win for the for the you know, the employee, if you like, from more of a reward point of view? And so take take money, take, take money out of it and look at other things. And again, I don't know the answer to this, which is why I'm interested in, you know, the the, the guests' opinions on this as well. If we're looking at reward, is personal growth and making access to personal growth a reward? Because you, yes. you said you know, about, yes, we've all done training courses where people are sat there going, oh, I've got to come on this. Well, you know, bugger off then. Don't bother. If, if you can't be bothered to help yourself and the company's helping you, we don't want you. But if we could somehow unlock growth so that people can, you know, we know the engagement thing you talked about, purpose, mastery, autonomy, start to work around those areas. I'll tell you why my thinking is sort of going off down this route a little bit. I'm in a really privileged position at the moment where I'm working with some students. And what is blowing me away about these guys is how they want to grow, how they're taking ownership of their career that hasn't even started yet. They're at unis, they're already learning a lot, but they're putting themselves out and they're doing internships, they're trying to get stuff that's making them better. And I compare this to so-called professionals. I'm like, <laughs> this is just chalk and cheese. So if this is how people are thinking, Maybe we can be using that a little bit and 
factoring that into the way that we reward. You know, the better you get, the better we will help you get, and you will grow and grow. And, and maybe you'll leave us because you put yourself in a better position. So I, I don't know if I'm totally lost the plot or... You've got another massive opportunity here because I genuinely do not believe that most managers... In fact, there was a, um, an SRC study done in 2020, tail end, that said only 6% of sales managers were fit for purpose. And one of the reasons is that many of them think that people are motivated by money. I was a headhunter for 10 years, and money came fifth or sixth, typically, when it came to what drove them. And there's a fabulous tool called Motivational Maps that looks at these nine key motivators. And when you understand an individual's motivational drivers, and they may be around money and control and power, uh, but very often it's uh, down to other important things, including recognition, including finding meaning in your work, freedom, and all of these other things. And we need to build a real understanding of motivation into the process of getting managers fit for purpose and up to speed. So on that note, what I'd love to do is bring in Bob Apollo and Simon Bowen. Bob, we'll start with you. Good morning. Touching on what we've just heard, by the way, I think the last time I heard the word cluster used in a conversation was describing the government's Brexit negotiating strategy, but let's <laughs> put that to one side. <laughs> I think it's becoming increasingly important when we recruit salespeople at whatever level that we assess their personal dedication to you know, developing themselves not the arms crossed attitude in a formal training session, but what, what, what they're doing for themselves to better themselves, to broaden their horizons. And I think we need to apply that to our existing salespeople as well, because we're in a world of, of change. And I think if we, we haven't got people on the team who are, no matter how old they are, open and alert and driven by a recognition that you know they need to continue to develop, then we're going to be in trouble. So I'll also just, uh, and I'm sorry Agreed. I missed the first, I caught you talking about outcomes, and you'll know that's a very key thing for me, because I think that we're better off working backwards from the business outcomes that our customer seeks to achieve than forwards from the so-called solution, open quote marks, close quote, quote, close quote marks, easy for me to say, <laughs> that we're trying to promote to the customer. Anyway, very glad to be on board with this august group. <laughs> Excellent. Speaking of august, Simon, welcome. Good to be here. I've only just jumped in, so I'm just catching up. That's all right. Well, let me set the scene. We kicked off with the, the question, if there were only five things that we could focus on that would get us 80% of the way to really turning the ship uh, when it comes to um, making sales a force for good, being relevant, being valuable, being trusted. Yeah. What would you pick as the five key areas that we really need to prioritize? So I, you've heard me speaking about this before. I, uh, we saw a we saw a absolute paradigm shift in 2020 with COVID 19, and with the disruption that created in the world. And obviously, everyone moved to Zoom and everything else. But it highlighted something that's been bubbling away for a long time. And that is the need for people in a buying process to be made safe. 
So, so much of selling historically has been pressure-based, scarcity and urgency, 101 closing techniques, NLP, matching and mirroring, all techniques that were valid in their day, but in today's world, people perceive as a bit manipulative and almost entrapment. So people kind of go into a buying process, not sure if what they're buying is actually going to deliver and, uh, you know, how, how much can I trust this? And we've been doing a lot of work with our clients around the concept of buyer safety. And simply that means if the buyer feels safer with you than they do without you, the safest possible thing for them to do is to commit to purchasing from you. If they feel safer with you through the purchase process. So, you know, there's levels of safety. In your marketing, they have the safety of anonymity. You don't know they exist, but they can look at everything you do. When they kind of put their hand up, but with the crowd, they have safety of numbers. You know, if they're on a webinar or they're at a conference, they're sitting in a room that you're speaking to. When they finally kind of appear to you as an individual, you know, they need the safety of process and, and they need the safety of privacy and they need to be able to think through what you're talking about in their own privacy. So, you know, we're seeing a big shift. I mean, as you know, we work with clients across about 17 countries and eight or nine different languages now with the work that we do with the models. And we're just seeing an enormous shift towards authenticity and transparency. So uh, the absolute top pick for me would be, you know, to trade in the currency of transparency and make the buyer safer at every step of your process. And we, in our selling process, we spell it out completely overtly. The second thing I'd really focus on is 2020 really saw the market move away from perceived value and value stacks and stacked value. You know, buy this item and get all these bonuses. And what people want is mm. profound value. They want some sort of level of deep, profound, impactful value for the money they spend. And so, you know, thought leadership to me became almost irrelevant in 2020 because everyone was saying they were a thought leader. And it commoditized it. Now, to be a thought leader, you have to have an original thought and you have to have people following that thought. And so everyone says, I'm a thought leader. And if any of us on the call have met somebody who called themselves a thought leader and we thought, you're such, you're so not a thought leader, we really ought to be challenging whether we even use that term. <laughs> and so we. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's massively overused. Oh, completely right. And so selling for a long time has been kind of make the buyer the victim. But actually, in today's world, you need, to, you need to make the buyer the hero. And what the hero needs is a sage. And so you need to be the sage that they buy from. And then there's three things that I would focus on that complete the five that make you a sage. One is to be able to express profound wisdom. They just know that they're in presence of profound wisdom when they hear you, when, when they, you, know, hear, hear you speak, see you present. The second thing is what I call powerful calm and that's an interesting thing powerful calm is you make them safe by safety because they're, they're destabilized when they're buying from you there's something that they're trying to resolve and there's so there's a, a little bit of destabilization around that issue so powerful calm you make them safe then you challenge them you make them stable then you challenge them are you clear about what you really want and then you offer hope so powerful calm and then the third thing is packaged simplicity as you know Marcus, I am, our entire business is about packaging deep and profound genius into these visual models. So 
Einstein started with four blackboards of formula when he first started working on the general theory of relativity. Then he ended up with E equals MC squared. He packaged one of the most complex concepts in physics into, into a little box called E equals MC squared. And if you study physics, it makes absolute sense. But he had to do the profound genius work of getting to simplicity. You can't sell complexity with more complexity. So I'd create biosafety. Uh, I'd, I'd be looking for a profound level of value to put in front of the clients. I'd back that up with profound knowledge. I'd, I'd consciously think about how we approach the market with this powerful calm and I'd really put a lot of effort into how we package the complexity of what we do into the simplest possible expression that, that people can get straight away and it changes everything about the, the, the you know, the, the buying experience basically. Outstanding. And just um, so everyone is aware, um, Simon's business models method creates these very, very simple models. But the amount of work and heavy lifting and thinking that goes into it is immense. But it's worth every moment. When you can encapsulate your entire proposition in between three and 15 minutes in a way that expresses your value to the customer and in such a way that they can then take that model and become your internal sales champions. That is very, very profound. So if you haven't um, had followed Simon uh, on LinkedIn, on YouTube, then I urge you to do so. It will be life-changing. Bob, let's bring you back in for a second, if I may. I know that you're very, very focused on outcome-based selling. So talk to me about the shift that is then required internally within the sales, marketing, and customer success and operations organization in order to create that focus on outcome? It isn't just a matter of relabeling value selling. And I do think it's particularly important and relevant in a world where not just for software, but in a whole a growing number of offerings, they're being consumed as a service by the customer rather than as an outright purchase. So our profitability is only created by a lastingly valuable relationship with, with that customer. And I think there has historically, and I see it even today, been a bit of a chuck-it-over-the-wall attitude by some salespeople and leaving it to implementation, customer success, however they're labelled, to pick up the pieces. And it's frustrating internally. And it's certainly frustrating for the uh, the customer. And I think part of the challenge is sometimes under traditional mindsets, the salesperson hasn't actually understood what outcome or outcomes the customer's trying to accomplish and how the customer will measure success. Now, I think it, it was very foolish not to do this because if you can help the customer identify significantly better uh, outcomes. I talk about the outcome gap between, you know, carrying with the status quo and, and and landing somewhere somewhere better. If there isn't a sufficient gap, there probably isn't a motivation to change in the first place. But if you do create that gap, then you need to um, achieve it. So, so what does that mean? I think it means that we need to work backwards from what we're trying to help our customers to achieve. It means that customer success needs to have visibility and be engaged and involved earlier on in the uh, in the selling process. 
it means that marketing needs to focus on articulating the outcomes that we're really good at helping customers to achieve and stimulating conversations that start from that rather than equipping the salesperson to deliver yet another glossily produced corporate sales deck, preferably not including a safe harbor statement, but, you know, if they must. Or a photograph of their HQ. Hmm? <laughs> or a photograph of their HQ. Yeah, well, that's and One other thing I would add to... <laughs> one other thing I would add to what Bob is saying is we need to understand how the customer will measure the outcome and the benefit. And if we don't understand that, then we will find ourselves in misalignment with them. And we need to be working in partnership. I released an interview yesterday on the Inquisitor podcast with uh, Jill Robbins. And she's been a chief procurement officer in corporate America, and she's a strategic purchasing officer. I'm not talking about the tactical type that just try and beat the crap out of you on price. But procurement is another um, side of customers' businesses that we really need to better understand. And we need to start learning how to partner with them. Because historically, it's been them versus us, and it's very adversarial. And again, I hold my hands up. I've been guilty of um, you know, propagating that message because my experience of dealing with procurement was normally very poor. They were just there, brought in at the end after you thought you had the deal. And the objective was then to squeeze you down for everything they possibly could. That's not what good procurement is about. Good procurement is there to enable the business to achieve its objectives. And they are talent spotters. And if you learn how to partner with procurement, uh, it can basically it's giving you the keys to the hen house. I really want to build on that. So again, uh, bringing Jerry into this conversation and Martin as well for the moment. Don't worry, Fred and uh, Alex, I will bring you back as well. I'm really curious about your thoughts in terms of how we can engage early in the buying cycle with the purchasing operation to ensure that we are in alignment with them and we understand what they are trying to achieve. So, Jerry, let's start with you. Yeah, I mean, it's quite an interesting conversation for me because most of my sort of context has always been in very early stage startup scale-up operations and very very early stage businesses. Most of those companies don't have an understanding of procurement cycles in the enterprise, particularly in their DNA. They've got a good idea. They've got an innovation. Everything that they do initially for product market fit is around proof of concept, proof of value. So it's not kind of like Bob's world or selling to the enterprise with an established system process status quo to defeat. You've got a net new idea. One of the things that I think dovetails with a lot of yours and Fred's world is this idea that startups can partner with the incumbent in the industry to to get through the procurement stuff so they don't have to absorb that themselves. You know, I'd rather do a deal with IBM if I've got a new conversational chatbot than doing it directly with my counterpart at Vodafone because they've already got the paper, they've already got the relationships. But I can probably learn off them. I can probably learn off IBM. I can probably learn off the incumbent that I can partner with in order to get my idea through. Secondly, procurement just feels really frightening to a lot of salespeople because it's the deal killer or the margin killer in most people's mindset. But actually, it's not. 
I think you've got to earn the right to have the conversation with them, though. You know, if I go back to Bob's old world of value-based selling, you had the four by four, you know, am I commodity? And you're working through to, am I strategic? You kind of got to kind of earn the right to move up through the quadrants to even start having the conversation with them. And, you know, in my world at the moment, I hardly ever touch procurement because we sell to proof of concept to value first at business level. And then eventually, as we start to prove our worth, then people start to come in and we have those conversations. But a lot of businesses still just aren't equipped to have it. You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of naivety about what it is, why it's important, how to partner with it. I still feel a bit blindsided every time I have a procurement person come into a conversation with me because it's not very often it happens. And I don't understand what it is that they're trying to achieve a lot of times. So I find myself sort of scrabbling around for a, play, a playbook so that I can assert equal business value. And I think if I struggle with it, I know that a lot of other people are going to be struggling with it as well, you know, because I'm probably just not operating at the level where procurement's even going to be that interested in me yet. And it's quite interesting to sort of get a sense of whether or not, you know, the point solution vendors like me uh, are sort of having those strategic conversations enough, if I'm honest. Jerry, one thing I've, I've found is it's really interesting to understand whether the client has a habit of buying point solutions. Uh, to your point about partnering you know with the bigger vendors or whether they always run home to mummy and you know go with the big brands because yeah. i think you can see indicators of previous behavior that can help you judge how open they're going to be to your own point solution but i think you're right marcus i think i think it's definitely something that needs to be on the curriculum and it's definitely something that not enough salespeople get taught from recruitment to onboarding to first contact with a prospect when they start their new job and I think that's because there's general naivety in most businesses as seeing it as a confrontational adversary <laughs> than a partner, somebody to be embraced. And, and if we were to design the perfect sales curriculum, Marcus, what would it look like? And you'd probably have somebody from procurement in there teaching on that, right? Absolutely. Again, the analogy I use is if you imagine a night bombing raid and every time the bomb drops, you hear a little pop and there's a little flash of light. And all of these are the uh, pain areas, the centers of dissatisfaction within the organization. Now, a strategic procurement operation will have visibility of all of these things. And they start seeing these problems being lobbed over the wall at them. Now, the tactical ones will be going out and trying to find a point solution and then get three to five vendors and then squeeze them down on price. But a strategic procurement department looks at the whole. What's the business trying to achieve? And where are the patterns? And I think one of the most important things, and this is where a lot of the work that Simon does and a lot of the work that Fred does really comes into play, in that what we should be doing is aligning ourselves with the business's strategic objectives, trying to work out what the board is trying to achieve, what procurement has been commissioned to exercise and implement, and then find a way of helping them solve those big problems. Because certainly in technology, the IT stack has become so complex. Just in security, a bank might have 20 or 30 different vendors. They'll have people with VPNs. They'll have password managers. They'll have zero trust solutions. They'll have firewalls and all of this other stuff. And you are just one cog in the machine. And it's a lot of moving parts. And if you don't understand what they're trying to achieve at a strategic level, then chances are, at best, 
you'll make a transaction happen, then you won't get the levels of utilization because people will be busy, 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 and there's no coordination. And this is really where I think Fred's work comes into its absolute own, which is we need to be selling with partnering skills and to build on the points that all of you have made. The buyer needs to be safe. There needs to be this continuity, and they need to know that we will not just do a drive-by shooting, which I think most salespeople and most sales organizations are guilty of inflicting. And you only ever turn up when you're up for renewal. Well, there's an, um, you know, you're doing the QBR, and you're throwing out some more product that you can pitch. That is not what buyers want or need. So, well, um, can I, can I Fred, just ask one question? Let's bring that. you in. Sorry, sorry, Fred, I don't mean to be rude. Can I just ask one question against that? What about the category creators? Here's the thing, right? There are a lot of businesses today that are creating new sources of value in category, and that just makes selling even harder. We talk a lot about buyers, right? And it's right to talk about buyers, and it's beautiful to talk about outcomes. But what if you're the category creator that's found a new source of value that nobody's ever thought about? That, that's the one thing that I think a lot of people that listen to things like this care about because they're probably startup executives trying to do this for the first time. And that's just something I really want to be a bit mindful of. Sorry, Fred, I didn't want to sort of sweep in and, and cut you off at the knees there. But I think it's quite an important question for a lot of people. I did it to Bob. Okay, so, yeah. I'll definitely come. <laughs> um, so, Fred, let's bring you in at this stage to answer uh, the question around partnering and selling through. So selling beyond the transaction and genuinely. Yeah, I mean, for me, partnering skills, so this PQ that I spoke about earlier, that's the access or a neat way to help explain to people the ethos, the mindset that we need. And, you know, as we've chatted before, yeah, we can talk about it on the grander scheme of things where you are absolutely looking to form a business alliance. But even at a more transactional level, you can still use these as your framework, as your guideline, to be operating in the right way. So it's actually applicable right across the board. It gets you thinking around, and you know, you've talked about alignment, or the way I have to talk about alignment, that it does take two to tango. And at some stages, it's great that we're talking about being strategic and all this kind of thing, but if the other party doesn't want you to, or if they're not going to behave in a way that's going to let you, we ought to be looking at that from a kind of psychological qualification and saying, well, I'm just going to be banging my head against the wall here. It's going to be very, very difficult for me to, for me to, to work in the right way. And so it, it could be simply be that, and, and this is what a buyer actually said to me, he gets quite annoyed when salespeople say, yeah, I want to work strategically with you. And he said, but you're just not a strategic importance. Yes, your sales target might be £2 million, and I'm going to be worth a million quid for you, but my budget is £2 million. You're not even 1%. So stop talking about being strategic. You're not. Just do a good job. I think as Jerry said earlier on, or certainly one of the guys, do a good job, automate stuff, do what you say you're going to do, and I'll pretty much leave you alone. Great. And there's nothing wrong with that. The other side then becomes, well, you, we want to be strategic, we want to work, we want to co-create value, we want to do all that good stuff. If they don't want to play ball, it's going to be very, very difficult. So I think it's, it's, picking, it's picking those right opportunities to then invest the huge amount of time and effort that you need to do this because it's not simple stuff. You know, building relationships is working with multiple people you know, we know about the decision-making units. <laughs> They're not getting smaller. All of those elements I talked about, the trust, the women focus, helping people through change, like guiding through VUCA, all of these things is not a quick transactional win. And so for me, that's what the partnering skills do. They, they, they neatly encapsulate, this is how we're going to think and work 
and we're going to take stuff very, very seriously. But you've got to be on board with us as well, Mr. Customer or Mrs. Customer. Very quickly to Fred's point about strategic importance. I see that mismatch all the time. And one of the things I try and encourage salespeople to do when they're coming up with account plans is on an evidence rather than an aspiration basis, say, how strategic are we really? Absolutely. And where, where could we get to? And how strategic are they to us? Because sometimes there's that, Fred, you pointed out, very significant difference. You know, I'm relying on you a lot, but you're just very tactical. Yeah. So, Martin, can I bring you in on this? Because obviously a lot of the work that you do um, speaks to how uh, we can position ourselves and be of consistent value to the customer and also how we can uh, communicate in a relevant and contextually appropriate way to make sure that customers and prospects self-select as to whether or not they are a strategic or just a tactical customer. I think the thing that comes to mind for me is just um, I feel like I'm becoming Jerry's best friend today, whether he likes it or not. Um, so building, <laughs> off, building off the back of what Jerry was speaking about and going back to what what I know Alex has just got a world-class capability about, about understanding the story you should tell about customers and stuff, right? It comes down to clarity of communication, right? So whether you're a new category creator or whether you're stuck in like a large enterprise doing enterprise sales, right? The thing that salespeople... Um, need to just just have a, a much more kind of open awareness about is how to communicate the different levels of the organization. So if I pick procurement, for example, Jerry's absolutely right. The vast majority of salespeople are never going to speak to a procurement person. They're shut away in broom cupboards, right? They don't want to speak to people. But the way that you can control that conversation, I've been doing this for now 15 years, 10 years of being self-employed, four different businesses. It's a really clear and simple example of how to do it. Every proposal that we do, we don't write 10, 15-page documents that people just cycle to the last page, look at the features, and then look at the price. What we do is record it as a Zoom call, and Zoom or any piece of technology, right? And we generally make it five to 10 minutes maximum. And what happens is if you give clarity to your sponsor or the decision maker, whatever stage you're at, they are very, very likely, and I've got a ton of evidence for this, to then pass it on to other people that matter in that journey and that experience, right? So what it means is that you go from my buyer is always going to be, the, say, the CTO, right? But then it gets into the ears of the CEO. Or I'm dealing with a head of a business unit, and then it's going to go into procurement, right? And the one thing that they get to hear is your tone, your emotion, your clarity of message, and there's nothing lost in between. And do you know what? The sponsors, the people that you're dealing with, absolutely love it because they can just say, right, it's ticked all my boxes. Now I can just pass it on. And it's just it's one of it's one example of a really simple way to communicate exactly what you want to say with the emotion, with the tone, with the positive psychology, all the components that go around that. So I think that it's just one example, but clarity of communication matters and your ability to literally be heard by people, as Jerry said earlier, is not about having a meeting. It's about it's about managing it so you get it into some of these ears. You don't have to meet with all the people. You just got to give people the right messages so they trust you, so they've got the safety, and then you move forward from that. So that, that's what comes to mind for your question. Marcus, can I can I just tag on to what Martin just said then and please for two seconds yeah. and We've Go never ahead. met Martin, but I'm in Perth, Western Australia, so we're probably in opposite sides of the world. So Martin's just talking about, particularly in terms of the corporate sale, is such a, you know, everyone wants to get to the decision maker, but there's no longer one decision maker. Everybody 
uh, you know, wants to have their product or service represented well in the organization. This idea of packaging complex things into simple into simple ways of distributing them. It's it's you know the two most important systems in any business are the system for thinking and the system for influence. If the thinking is solid and sound and you can influence people at will, everything else seems to take care of itself. And so, you know, if you can package this complex thought into something simple that people can distribute, package for distribution, and then if you can allow one more thing to attach to that, the person in the organisation that's going to pass your message around, which is why I really like what Mark was saying, have to be able to package their ego with your message and have it carry with it. They are passing their reputation through the organisation attached to your message. So if you kind of give them, if you speak to them and go, go out and have a chat to the rest of the people in your organisation about this, they have no clue how to express what you just did in an elegant way and they're going to fall over. But if you do what Martin just said, you give them a really you know, well-thought-out video, the system for thinking, that packages the message in it. In our world, you know, it's a well-thought-out model that packages the message in it that will allow them to look good for having passed it around and they could package their ego with your message that carries through the organisation. It will go viral inside an organisation. We're also focused on viral spread on social media and everything else. It would be really healthy to step back and just focus on viral spread through an organisation that you're trying to actually win business with. And how do you make something go viral? It goes viral when everybody that spreads it looks good or clever or ahead of the curve or up with things. So that conversation that Martin had I think is really, you know, significant in selling into a corporate environment, into a multi-layered, multi, and I, I, I really appreciate, you know, a lot of the comments through here. Jerry's comment about category creators. You know, the old thing about a category creator doesn't have a taste like chicken. In Australia, you can buy a crocodile. You know, if you go to Alice Springs, middle of Australia, you can get a crocodile steak. And the joke is people go, what's crocodile taste like? Oh, it tastes like chicken. All right, then I'll have the crocodile. You know, it's a category. It's a new category, but you don't have a comparison, right? So you've got to be able to, you've got to, be able to package the category you've created against something else they understand that will make the people spreading that message look good. So kind of between, you know, what? Jerry and then Fred and Martin were saying, I just it's actually a really important thing for people to get their heads around in terms of don't just try and get to the decision makers, make your message viral inside the organization. Make it the only message anyone hears. So you know, Alex, Alex, sorry, Alex can I bring you in on this to build on Simon's point around the clarity of and relevance of communication in order to ensure that the message does go viral internally? Yeah, I mean, it's a really good point. And I love the idea of kind of that virality internally and, and, and actually kind of implanting a message that can spread in that way. Uh, it's, it's a brilliant, brilliant idea. I, I think one of, one of the biggest issues is a lot of the time the business that you're selling to doesn't understand the problems that it's facing, right? So it has a feeling of what's going wrong, but it doesn't quite under, understand exactly where that problem emanated from. And so I think one of the most powerful things that any salesperson or marketer or whoever it is that's engaging with a company can do is help them to understand the problem that they're facing, really get under the skin of it. And that's something that will that, that leads to that virality because, and this is why storytelling is so important. We talk about storytelling in terms of, you know, the importance of, of having an emotional message. 
and this idea that stories have that innate emotion in them. But I don't think people really understand that. I mean, they kind of get it on a superficial level. You know, we make decisions emotionally, not logically, and storytelling is emotional, therefore we need to tell stories. But the whole point of a story is that it really breaks down the journey that you're going to take your client on, your prospect, the, the buyer on. It, say, it says, this is where you are. And, and we've dealt with this problem before. And, and I'm going to help you understand that problem. I'm going to help you see it in new ways so that you can actually deal with that problem. And then I'm going to show you through that story how I took somebody else exactly like you through the problem. And here is the impact of what we've helped them to achieve. So I think when talking about virality, when talking about a selling message that is able to be passed on, it's got to be story based because it's stories that people pass on. And it's that's and what stories do is they actually simplify the complex because they remove all the feature. They remove all of the technicality and they just focus on the journey that you're going to take people on. Very interesting. OK, so, Bob, let's bring you in on this. You've sat in the position of um, the CEO, the VP of sales. And I'm really curious to learn when you're on the buyer side and a salesperson turns up, what is it that you want to happen in the course of that conversation so that you feel that your time is being well spent and it's been a valuable engagement? Well, you know, I want to go away smarter than I was at the start. And in my case, that's probably not very difficult. But, you know, <laughs> I, I, I think for time to be respected, I, I'd <laughs> hope that I'd walk away, even if I didn't end up buying, even if I didn't end up progressing the sale with this particular salesperson, I'd like to think I went away smarter. I learned something. I, The salesman stimulated me to think about you know, an issue in a way that I hadn't thought about it before, or to think about consequences of something I was aware of in a way that I hadn't thought about before. I'd like them to educate me and make me smarter before they try and sell me something, because I'm more predisposed then to continue the conversation. I'd hope that the salesperson had you know, made me feel comfortable in agreeing to not just a continuation of the conversation, but an advance, you know, that, you know, I make some commitment where all parties demonstrate their desire to make some meaningful progress. But yeah, I think the most important thing is uh, don't shower me with thought leadership that I've heard from everybody else before. Don't, I know when Challenger <laughs> first published that five point 57% through the buying process, people were using it without any interpretation, without any yeah. insight. I heard it from a hundred places and it got, got to be meaningless. You know, if, you, if you're going to try and educate me, give me an insight I haven't heard from somebody else. Yeah. I, I think it requires, it requires a certain, a level, certain of level of intelligence from a salesperson. End. And I, I think you've touched on something really important here. I think salespeople need to be intelligent. The day of the empty suit, the talking brochure is long gone. I don't think there was ever really a place for it. But I think certainly when we're dealing with complex sales, you have to be a strategist. You have to be somebody who can think broader and further than um, simply your, uh, hitting your quota or your product range. You need to understand 
all the moving parts within the business. Sorry, go on, Bob. And you need smart sales managers as well. And that's another, you know, discussion that could take ah, yeah. the whole, you know, <laughs> another whole session. I think you also have to be a planner. I think one of the most important qualities you can look for in a salesperson is the ability to plan and uh, think ahead. If you uh, cannot it, see into the future through your planning and rehearsal, sorry, go on. There's a lovely Bob? quote from John Harvey Jones, and I'm not going to quote it verbatim, but I'll give you the sense of it. He says something like, nobody likes planning. They just prefer getting on and doing something. And he, But he paused, and he went on to say, the great benefit of not planning is that failure comes as a complete surprise and is not preceded by a long period of worrying. <laughs> <laughs> I like that, Bob. <laughs> uh, so again i cannot stress enough that organizations who are under pressure to grow their sales and improve their performance have within their capability uh, the ability to grow in very high double and if not triple figures if they just stop doing stupid things and the acts of idiocy and self-sabotage I see on a daily basis, and they break my heart, is the pseudo-personalization and automation of marketing, filling the funnel with utterly shit irrelevant leads, then sales bombarding people uh, with irrelevant product-orientated messages that just fill people's inboxes. They spend an outrageous amount of time, and Jerry, I got these statistics from you, 33 dial attempts to get one effective, unless you are calling a senior decision maker in IT, in which case the average is 46 dial attempts. Now, what we know also is roughly one in 14 effectives results in a first meeting. But the depressing statistic, which is a byproduct of piss-poor planning, lack of preparation, total absence of rehearsal, um, is that seven out of eight first meetings do not result in a qualified second meeting. And you look at the waste that that represents, the interruption, the frustration that the buyer must feel, the seller, the SDRs, the, uh, the AEs, the managers, um, that waste is obscene. And if we do not take control over that, and start taking personal responsibility for it, then I fear that what will happen is we will continue to see the rise in mental health problems and burnout, both at the sales level and the middle management layer. Um, and I, I think fundamentally, the most leverage will be in addressing the issue which Bob raised, which is around middle management and really improving the runway the onboarding, the training, the ongoing training and coaching of senior management to middle management. Um, so, Martin, love to bring you in on this as well. Your thoughts around that topic? I think it's really easy to bait sales leaders. And I, I do hear that a lot in general, right? And you, you can argue about the, the selection criteria and just because somebody's good at sales doesn't necessarily make them a good leader, et cetera, Right. But I do believe that there's fundamental issues with, with the way that people understand what leadership is and how it's nurtured and how it's encouraged. One of my previous businesses was uh, sales psychology and sales training. And one of the reasons that I sold the business was that 
every time we did sales training for enterprise businesses, every single time, the managers would be up and down, walking in and out of the room on their mobile phones all the time. No matter what rules were put in place, no matter what was said or anything like that, because they didn't feel that it was for them because they felt they'd already done these things and already walked the walk with it. Interestingly, when it was when it was SMEs, when it was high growth, when it was category creators, everybody was there and everybody wanted to learn about it. And it was never about, um, well, probably the first year of my business, I obviously took it against my own ego because that's what you do until you learn, right? Um, and that's one of the things that is just a great example of, of where businesses set themselves up to fail. Forget about the leaders because the leaders can only work with the tools that they're given, right? And I think that there's a fundamental thing that goes from how we pay people and how we incentivize them how we encourage and celebrate success, but more than that, how we learn from our failures. And I think that performance marketing is, has got the same predilection and, and issues that performance sales does. We've become too focused on the outcome and the end game number without understanding the leverages and the parts in the middle, which is what you and Jerry have both spoken about, which is the quality of the pipeline, which is the coaching methodology, which is the ability to to for salespeople to feel safe, not just the customers that Simon was speaking about, but how can we open Absolutely. the door to do that? There's too much negativity and pressure. And Jeff Bezos, I mentioned Amazon earlier, right? So richest man in the world, he was asked recently, what, what's the number one piece of advice you'd give for any other business leader or any leader in general? And he said, you've got to give yourself time to think. And I think that's one of the big keys that we just don't encourage salespeople to have that ability to think. And the best salespeople are the ones that do the thinking. So they've got a model to follow and everybody needs that kind of discipline, but you've got to combine it with creativity. If you don't have creativity and discipline, then you've just got a discipline of a model and that's easy for people to blame, you know? Uh, for those of you who have not yet read it, Keith Cunningham's book, The Road Less Stupid, is a must read. And one of the most important takeaways from that is every week you need to give yourself 45 minutes with a notepad and a pen no computers, no phones, and at the top of the pad is a question. It's the most important question that you have to address and get answers to. And you just spend 40, 45 minutes thinking deeply about that issue. And the, the output is normally more questions more, uh, as well as answers. We're coming very close to time. So what I'd like is each of you, if I may, to give one parting shot in terms of what you believe, either maybe a takeaway from today or one area that you believe people could volunteer for and start making a difference by contributing either to the discussion or to establishing a, a route to coming up with answers to these difficult questions. So if I can start with um, Bob, if I may. Marcus, thank you. I think in any complex sales environment, perfection is an impossible task. But to pick up on a theme that we heard earlier, yep. if we can eliminate all of the wasted effort and activity that bedevils most of the time that salespeople and sales organizations invest, we would make terrific progress. So eliminate waste. Absolutely. Standard population on that one. Brilliant. Nominate someone. Well, I'll just go across the, the uh, okay, crosses board. Jerry. <laughs> All right. Um, thanks, Bob. I'd, I'd like to yeah. see more forensic time spent on actual business 
in onboarding for most new sales reps so that they can get into the balance sheet, understand the mechanics and the workings of of who you prospect to, who you sell to a lot better. Forget about product, forget about features, forget about benefits. Actually do something better in onboarding. Bring in CFOs who you sell to, bring in your customers to talk about why they bought and and seed the story and enable sales to think about that from day one rather than worrying about product and systems and technologies and processes. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. When when I trained uh, salespeople in my clients' companies, the first thing we do is we focus on understanding the customer and thinking as them. Every job function, how they all interlink, what they're they're trying to achieve and focus on the business acumen first. Because the product, let's face it, you can learn the language of an industry within five or six meetings. And all you need to know about the product is um, how it can help you ask better and more insightful questions. You can bring in your technical support people to answer the deep technical questions later once the customer has earned the right to get that information. So nominate somebody, please, Jerry. Who should I nominate? Um, Alex. Thanks, Jerry. So uh, I, I want to just pick up on everything that you've just, just been said, right? I think you've got to talk more to your customers, right? Your customers, your best customers will tell you everything you need to know to sell to people just like them. You just need to have the right questions. Better questions give you the better answers, get you to sell better. And, and just to, to think, pick up on what Martin was saying, yeah, we need to create time for ourselves to think. But what good questions do is they get your customers to think. And when you're getting them to think and you give them to space to think and they come with those light bulb moments that you help them to create, then you create a very strong connection between you and them. So I think speak to your customers, find out what the impact you've made, the value you create, and, and ask better questions. The only thing I would add to that is speak to the ones who are not happy as well. I think Absolutely. you've got to be brave and courageous enough to do both. Excellent. Nominate. Simon. I'm going to go on the same, a similar theme to everybody else about depth of thinking. You know, we live in a digital world, but humans are still analog creatures. So, you know, I would challenge people to think, you know, talk about planning and preparation, think at a deeper and richer level than everybody else your client's going to meet. So, so much of today's selling is based on creating wow with the presentation, wow with the product offering, wow, and wow is a narcotic. And when you serve someone a narcotic, they need a bigger hit the next time around. And, uh, you know, there's a level below wow, which is just, oh, it's the only sound the human body can make without effort. You just drop your jaw, oh, out it comes. And it's universal and it's the same in every language. And it's also the sound of most of the great prophets, Yahweh, Allah. It's the sound of meditation. Um, it's that deep sound of internal insight and rest. And when you can sell to that oh, level, you express something so profound for the customer that they, they actually didn't realise it was there and then nobody else matters at that point. And we have a challenge those of us that are in sales, that selling should be the most noble thing that any organisation does. Yeah, yeah. You cannot ask fulfilment, logistics, or everybody else to be more noble than the sales team because they're the people that made the promise. 
And so we need to take the customer to this richer, deeper level of conversation and thought that they have with everybody else and make it a truly noble experience for them. And selling should be setting the benchmark for the nobility of the organisation, not be the part of the organisation that everybody else complains about. You know, and we should be challenging the entire industry of sales to step up to that mark and own it, you know. But it's this, like, to, 2020, 2021 is, is the age of selling at a deeper level of wisdom and insight that the customer never saw coming but can't let go of once they hear it. Well, you know, Marcus, um, I'm not I'm not really good with shallow conversations, but you but you can't you can't be shallow and deep at the same time. Now, product and price is a shallow conversation. And as soon as you take someone deep, you can't be shallow and deep at the same time. Take them deep, you take them away from price. It's uh, you know, richer, deeper conversations. Excellent. That's incredibly profound. Thank you. So uh, nominate someone and uh, you've definitely uh, drawn the short straw following that one. I think, Fred, you still haven't been up yet, have you? <laughs> yeah. I played rugby and I had hospital passes then as well. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to build on that. Why wouldn't I? Joking apart, reflect. We, we, we talked about it earlier on and we talked about reflection because you know, I've said earlier it takes two to tango. We talked about conversations, but it's got to begin at home. We've got to be good at this stuff. We're trying to get customers to reflect. We're trying to get them to think deeply. This is what the guys have just already said. We've got to think better as well. And the point is, it's not difficult to do. You can do it morning and evening. Most people have this in their hand too much anyway. So download a conversational chatbot, one that asks you questions, not that you ask questions to and it gives you answers, one that asks you questions and have a little five-minute conversation with it in the morning and the evening. It works, and I can say that because I do it. And since I started, it's it's helped me think and it's helped me get clearer. And it's also helped me communicate better because you you communicate stuff faster to the, the little imaginary person that you're talking to. So reflection, or if you use a journal or something that's going to make you think. Absolutely. A journal is the single most powerful tool I've ever been able to uh, bring to my clients. And if you do not reflect, you are forgetting more than you've ever known. It's a huge mistake not to be a reflective salesperson. Martin, your turn. The biggest thing for me is it's kind of nice that I'm going last for what I'm going to say is that if you think about what everybody's attended today, it's about being a force for good, sales being a force for good, right? So I would like all of us to eat our own lunch, and I'm speaking to you as attendees more than anything, is you've got a safe environment. And Marcus has put the message at the bottom, right? You could You could DM Marcus anything you want. Any of your fears, any of your concerns, any of things that you wish that you knew better, whatever it is, and then in future um, components of Sales for Good, then we'll actually address that. And I think that's us us as a group eating our own lunch by saying, what do you actually need? So we've gone through a number of things today that we end up talking a lot about theoretical stuff. A lot of it is ground in wisdom and knowledge and things that we've seen. But let's hear from you, because that's the point. Imagine the next time that you turn up, we're actually addressing one of the issues that you've got, one of the things that keeps you up at night. I think that would be a great way to summarize sales as a force for good. So make it a force for good for yourself. Thank you all so much. This has been a fascinating, insight-packed conversation. And um, I'd love to have you guys all back over the course of the next four or five years, because I I think this is a long-term play. I'm going to be looking for volunteers, and about 20 people have already volunteered, but we need more. This is a global movement. That's what we're trying to create. 
initially what I have in mind is that we will take one difficult question each month and then in our local groups or in our special interest areas, we will go away and try and address that question. And I want to build different platforms so that people can feel comfortable uh, operating there. I think Clubhouse, if there's anybody out there who's managed to actually work out how to make Clubhouse work <laughs> and not just be a massive constant interruption, then I would love to speak to you because I think it it has the makings of a fantastic discussion platform. If you are an expert in Miro or Mural, uh, what I would like to do is create a repository of all that we learn and uh, create maps, build Kanbans and swim lanes so that we've got these conversations going on. We capture these lessons. All those resources will be available for free forever. This is a not-for-profit. We're trying to raise the bar. And uh, as Simon said, this is a noble profession, and we need to exercise nobility with this. And um, I, I take a leaf out of the, uh, the concept of the infinite game. I believe what we should be doing is trying to keep the game going. It's not about winning or not losing. It's about keeping the game going, making the pie bigger, not trying to take a bigger piece of the uh, shrinking pie. So this is about collaboration. And our success in the future will be determined by our capacity to collaborate. So that's my parting message. Thank you all. This has been absolutely fabulous. Thank you, Marcus. Okay. Bye-bye. Thanks, Marcus. Bye. Thanks, Marcus. Thanks, Rob.